Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. <laughs> pounds, pounds. Welcome to another episode of Sheologians. We are here today to put the she in Shenvi. Good one. Thank you. We have more guests on that. Um, <laughs> more guests that just that have, have a she, she or, or a her. her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If your name includes S-H-E or H-E-R, invite yourself on our show. <laughs> it'll be, it'll make my life easier. Anyway, Can we just hi. start using people who like follow the Facebook page? Just start using? Just like. We're here to put the she in Sheena Johnson. <laughs> I don't think anybody's name is Sheena. Sheena, you know who you are, girl. <laughs> my name is Summer Yeager. That's my beautiful co-host, Joy, who I just found out is having random recurring pregnancy dreams. I don't I think I exp- I've heard pregnancy dreams are intense. I mm. wouldn't know a thing about it. I already kind of have a weird dream life okay like i've always yeah had really vivid dreams and i like remember my dreams when i wake up and stuff yeah but they did get more intense intense after i got especially when i was early on Mm. pregnant but you keep rubbing your pregnancy belly i know it's getting bigger and bigger (laughs) well that's good and more and more well i should say less and less i like to be sitting at anything (laughs) approaching a 90 degree angle (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of the time I, I hang out at an obtuse angle right? or most preferably lay down in my bed. Yes. Also, that's the best. <laughs> but yeah, um, I've been having a lot of dreams about orca whales. Oh, that sounds people. lovely. But, the, but like the... <laughs> Never mind. The, okay. Um, like the <laughs> physics aren't there. Okay. Like they... Orca whales swallow their food yeah. whole. Mm-hmm. They don't like chew it, even though they have, have a lot of teeth, razor sharp teeth. Right. So in my dreams, like you can kind of save a person from being eaten by an orca whale yeah. by just like reaching in and they just kind of like, like back out. <laughs> it's okay. going to come back out, um, which I also don't think is how that would work. Okay. I also don't know that orca whales eat a lot of people. Um, they don't. They are very dangerous. Yeah. I, I know. I know a bit. I had a, a really intense free willy phase as a kid uh-huh. um like where i just we all i mean anyone who's our age i think <sighs> i mean one time i had a book report um i was given a report to do on baleen whales uh-huh but i guess i wasn't paying attention and i heard <laughs> whales no so i was like shamu here we come willy i'm and gonna then I did do the whole report project <laughs> and my teacher was like luckily it was before the due date but she was like actually baleen whales was your <laughs> wait toothed whales you turned in a project before its due date well she was like looking it over oh okay i was like what a weirdo and i didn't know that like, happened <laughs> and she was like actually your assignment was baleen whales so you're gonna have to go back oh and tough take day. a look but yeah tough lots day. of like surprising amount of orca whale dreams right and then i have i had a dream it was really funny that I felt like it said a lot about me as a person, not the dream, but like me thinking about it later. Mm-hmm. I had a dream that I was back in high school and um, this like popular girl, she wasn't a real person. Like in the dream, she was just that. Okay. Like that character. That type, yeah. But yeah. she wasn't anyone specific for my high school. Right. My class was like 900 people. Right. But it didn't. Right. It wasn't like a. It wasn't like that. What is that Degrassi or anything like that? I've never seen it. I've seen half an episode. Okay. <laughs> I just know it's like stereotypical, it's whatever. High school. Got it. Um, <laughs> and so um, she like bumped into me and then later in the day she bumped into me again. And I was like, this is the second time you've bumped into me. You need to like be just be aware of people around you. <laughs> And when I woke up and I thought about that dream later in the day, yeah, I was like, 
I should, I wish I could go back to high school and be more assertive. And then I was like, joy, (laughs) if that doesn't say anything about how assertive, like what you think assertiveness is, I literally just said to her, I was like, you just need to be careful. (laughs) And I was like, that really that speaks volumes about how assertive I was in high school. Right. It was not at all. Not at all assertive. (laughs) That would have been like over the top for me. My best friend in high school, she said she didn't talk to me until junior year because she said her assessment of me, (laughs) I love her so much. (laughs) The reason she didn't talk to me until junior year is because her assessment of me up until that point was that I walked around like I thought I owned the place. (laughs) And I was like, how does a walk do that? And she goes, I don't know, but your walk does it. I love her so much. We're still friends. And I don't know what that means. And I don't feel like my walk is, it just, I just feel like I put one leg in front of the other. You I don't really know. weren't worried about. Maybe because I wasn't worried about yeah. anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe because I didn't care yeah. what people thought Generally, about me. That was the vibe yeah. that she got. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming. I don't know. Anyway. Well, you're right. Your All joy. that was. <laughs> just my compliment thank you um but you're right i am joy and i'm having weird dreams um i usually tell matthew about him when i first wake up and then i ask him what'd you do last night and he's like he's a guy so he doesn't care about his dreams right but he very nicely listens to me boringly tell about mine my husband tries to interpret my dreams so (laughs) it's very stressful He's like, wow, you must be feeling like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, stop interpreting my walk and my dreams. Listen, Daniel. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, something about a mustard tree. <laughs> um, okay, you're right. I am Joy. <laughs> yep. And I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Summer. And the thing that you should know about Summer is that she is a pastor's kid. I am. You guys already knew that. I mean, well, no, the other day someone, it happens all the time. People will see something on the internet and they'll go, what? Well, yeah, I guess more and more people are finding us separate from your dad. Right. So. So then they come late to the news that I have a father that they might have heard of. Right. And then. Well, and especially you guys don't have the same last name. So if you were Summer White. Right. It might be like, oh, wait a minute. Are you? But it's a common last name. So right. it's it not really. Like... Yes, I did grow up a pastor's kid. And that's why I was telling, I have a small group of ladies that meets at my house on Tuesday nights. <laughs> I was telling them, I was like, sometimes I feel like I want to start a ministry for people in ministry. <laughs> because right. being in ministry is really hard. Right. <laughs> it's and they're Great. usually one of the last groups of people to get ministered <laughs> I to. Know. I'm like, so can I start a ministry for people in ministry? Um, that might just be called ministry. Right. But, uh, yes, agreed. <laughs> but it was, don't take that too far. It was a joke. I just do. I feel We're just so, having fun. <laughs> I just feel so passionate about people in ministry and, and trying to be, you know, can we all just be good to our pastors, please? And be yeah. good church members. Can we just do that and yeah. like pray for them and be gracious, be and gracious and, and understand that they're humans too. And yeah. can we just do that. Um, anyway, I just think, you know, pastors have such an incredible job and pastors wives have. Well, and if you can be, if you're close enough to your pastor to be, like, annoyed by something he did, you probably go to a really, like, you go to a better church than a lot of people. Right. A A lot lot of people people don't even get to know their pastors. Yeah, they just see him walk on the stage and (laughs) walk off the stage. Right. Is that your dad? Did he hear us talking (laughs) about him? No, he's, like, in Tucson riding his bike or something. I don't know. He sounds like him. He called me this morning. We had a long conversation and it was really fun. But he was like, well, I need to go ride my bike up this mountain now. So (laughs) So I'll talk to you later. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, that's um, ways to end out a conversation if you're James White. (laughs) Sorry, about to ride up up this mountain. mountain. (laughs) (laughs) That's so him. Um, Okay. Got to get on a plane to travel across the world. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, the, a couple of weeks ago, he was in London, and so he FaceTimed me and the kids and like walked around London with his phone, like giving us a tour. The tour. And I was so into it. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I'm so excited because when I go to his house tonight. I have like a pile of stuff that he <gasps> bought me from London and I'm just really looking forward to it. Um, so anyway, anyway. Um, the guests that we're going to have on today, I'm super excited about. You guys have heard us talking about intersectionality and critical theory. And if you've been listening for a while, you might be like this again. Um, but no, this again, yes, but no, because um, <laughs> we know a lot about it. And we still, there's still always more. And it's, sometimes it's nice to hear someone else. Yes. Talk about it. Yes. And Um, it's because it's hard to, well, we talk about it in the interview. Right. We just talk about sort of the, you know, like it's not really, it's like, what is, what is critical theory? Right. And you can't (laughs) just be like. well it's this (laughs) right like there's a whole conversation that has to happen right and obviously this is a topic that we think is super important and the reason that it first came on our radar was because we were seeing how it's applied and it was impacting us in our lives personally how these things are how these ideologies are played out and so i don't know sometime last year i started seeing on twitter articles being shared by this guy and I started reading them and I was like yes this is what I've been talking about except said in much better smarter ways right so um, anyway I was like hey dude sir can you please I think it's the like it's the formally educated mind yeah Um, maybe like we know a few people that talk about like it's not about being educated it's about like the type of person you are right and i feel like a part of that applies to um presenting information right like when you write a lot of papers and you write like a dissertation or like this is the rundown right of all my research and stuff right it really helps you it helps with the skill of organizing yeah. your thoughts and right comprehension and like reteaching and stuff like that right so i'll so, just i'll just be super honest with you guys we've already recorded the interview now we're coming back to introduce <laughs> the interview um i just think it might be easier to tell you that and to give you a little bit of a heads up that um i really think you should if if you're tempted to be bored by this topic or to think this isn't important it doesn't apply to me i just want to beg you don't turn it off because these ideologies, if they aren't already in your church, in your lives, in your family's lives, in the lives of someone you know, they're for sure in your social media feed and they're for sure dangerous. So I'm going to implore you to please, please, please listen to our interview with Neil because it was very, very helpful. And, and if you decide not to, then... <laughs> then change your mind. Anyway, enjoy our interview with Neil. Okay, so I'm super excited about our guest today. His name is Neil Shenvey. He has a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. Right now, he homeschools his four kids, just like me. Um, mm-hmm. And he's also a tutor, or maybe you're still a tutor. I don't know. You can tell us um, with your local classical conversations homeschool co-op. His oh, name classical is conversations. Classical Conversations. Is that right? His name yep. is uh, Neil Shenvey. And Neil, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Summer. Enjoy. <laughs> Are you, um, you're still tutoring with Classical Conversations? Yep. I've been a master's class tutor for, I think this will be my fourth year coming up now. That is so cool. We have a lot yeah. of, we have a lot of Classical Conversation nerds around us, and I think you guys do great well, work. If, you, if, you, if you're listening to this and you don't know what that is. Yeah look into it look into it for <laughs> sure um so if you've been following uh sheologians for a while you have seen me um share some of neil shenby's work with you guys he's um he's doing a lot of really great work right now on a topic of critical theory which is something you have heard joy and i talk about but mm-hmm. i personally think that he explains it in a way that is very very helpful so just out of personal curiosity, Neil, how did you start studying critical theory? 
Very good question. So it's world away from my expertise in theoretical chemistry and quantum mechanics. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's and it's funny because uh, you know I'm a, I'm kind of an apologist by passion, so I do a lot of apologetics reading, but kind of standard stuff. I'm a generalist, just just to be able to share the gospel with other people. And uh, but a few years ago, I noticed that a bunch of people that I knew personally and sort of public figures were kind of drifting in their theology, and I couldn't figure out why. And I even began noticing that in, in apologetic encounters, there would be a lot more focus on social questions uh, and mm. questions of whether Christianity was good and moral rather than whether it was true. Mm. And if it didn't sort of conform to a sort of progressive cultural norms, then it was considered bad whether or not it was true. They were kind of unconcerned with that question. And then, as I said, even Christians, I noticed, would, would go from, say, being concerned about social justice, which I assumed meant they wanted to apply the Bible to the laws of our country, which is, I think, a good thing. We should try to apply biblical wisdom and principles to the laws. But then they went from saying social justice to then having these more and more uh, liberal ideas theologically about all kinds of things, from gender to sexuality, and even to the point where some of them became just atheists. And I couldn't figure out what was happening. And then about uh, it's like two years ago now, I guess, but I read a book called Race, Class, and Gender, which is a huge anthology of writings, like 500 pages, um, touching on all kinds of topics on race, class, and gender. And when I finished the book, I remember putting it down and saying, this is my answer. Mm. Uh, this is not just a disconnected set of ideas. This is a, a different worldview. Hmm. And people yeah. are adopting this worldview, and that's why it's eroding their Christian worldview, because you can't, you can't have two worldviews. They don't, they don't fit together well. Right. Um, so that's why I got into this. So I started reading, I mean, as voraciously as you can when you have four kids, but right. I started reading <laughs> as much as I could. Uh, Summer, I heard in one of your podcasts recently, you were you know, lamenting how you really don't like reading lots of feminist authors, and I, I totally know what you mean. You said you do it because so other people don't have to. Right. <laughs> and I mean, some of, the, some of the work I've been reading, it is sometimes insightful, it's interesting, sometimes other times it's very, it's a lot of drudgery, but I feel like I want to do it because I want familiarity with the primary sources. I don't want to go on what other people are telling me or in the sources, I want to actually know for myself what's in them. Right, right. And a lot of people have um, legitimate questions about, well, what are what are the sources that we can read um, to learn about critical theory? It's interesting that you said this is something that really dropped on your radar about two years ago, because I think Joy and I would say the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't really know at the time how best to label what we were seeing happen. Um, the closest I could come at that time until I started hearing about something called critical race theory because of reading Kimberly Crenshaw, the closest I could come up with was this was some form of neo-Marxism, but I was never yeah. really... I was never super comfortable with the term. I never really felt it was the closest approximation I could come up with. Um, but I have heard you argue that critical theory is really the monster that we're dealing with. If it had a name, that it would be that. Is that true? I, I think so. You know, I think probably neo-Marxism and Antonio Gramsci are probably technically more closer to what we're dealing with, but he's actually a, an old writer. This is contemporary stuff we're dealing with. So it's very hard to name it. And also critical theory, it's like talking about postmodernism or feminism, right? Right. So what is feminism? You're talking about third and fourth wave feminism where there is no one definition. And so right. it's very hard to say, well, what exactly are you talking about? I can name authors I'm thinking of, but I can't, not all critical theorists agree with all other critical theorists, but I think it's a, it's a neutral term. When you hear critical theory, you don't go, ooh, it's, oh, it's communism. You say, well, well, what's that? So I think people get up when, they, when you say this is neo-Marxism, they're like, oh, you're calling me a name. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm just telling you what this ideology is. Right. So I found that people are more open to saying this sounds like critical theory or let me explain to you what I think you seem to be saying or what maybe, maybe your influences uh, without sounding pejorative. Like I'm not slandering you. 
I'm just right. saying this is the ideology I hear you sort of espousing. Right. So how can we spot it? How if you were like, oh, that right there is critical theory. What is that? Right. So I, I try to it's, it's and this is it's a very broad, very diverse, like postmodernism or feminism. But I try to classify it according to, you know, a few central ideas. And so the, the really main one is that critical theory, since its inception, this is back in the Frankfurt School, 1930s, um, critical theory is and always has been concerned with oppression and liberation. And so critical theory views the world as divided between oppressors and the oppressed, these oppressed groups. And groups are oppressed uh, by what's called hegemonic power. So hegemonic power is the ideolo ideology that people absorb, and it uh, it's the that they absorb from the ruling class. So it's a story the ruling class tells to justify their own dominance. Let me read you a quote from, um, this is from Heather Davidson and co-authors, uh, mm -hmm. uh, just about critical theory. Uh, she writes, since its inception, critical theory has been primarily concerned with the elimination of oppression and the promotion of justice. Liberation is a theme that runs through critical theory, liberation from objective oppressors such as colonizers to exploitative uh, employers and liberation from subjective forces such as mass culture and ideology. That's a key. So mm. when they say oppression, we'll get into this later, but they've redefined a lot of terms. So oppression means not only uh, unjust treatment and control, like slavery, you know, uh, abuse, torture. Right. Uh, that, that's one form of oppression, but they would also include ideologies. So ideas that have captured the popular culture and then we become slaves to and from which we have to be liberated. So that would that would be a form of oppression. Hmm. Well, and then, okay, so that's that's one. That's like the main idea. Right. And so uh, here's another quote. I I have a lot to quote to just to, to show you I'm not making this up up here. <laughs> um, so here's Jacob Gross in uh, Education and Hegemony. He says, uh, in common usage today, hegemony might simply be used as a synonym for dominance and supremacy. Concepts of hegemony enable us to appreciate how dominant groups manipulate symbols and images, construct quote-unquote common sense, and thereby maintain their power. This is a key idea. So here's an example I think will resonate with conservative Christians. Think about he hegemonic power actually is a real thing, and you can see it when you think about uh, the advertising industry or the beauty industry or, or Hollywood, right? Sure. When people get these ideas of what is beautiful, what, what is sexuality about? They absorb that from the culture, from magazines. From it's not one thing, one source. It's everywhere. And mm -hmm. as Christian parents, we have to work really hard to teach our kids. Actually, the things you're seeing on TV, in movies, in music, in books, on, in magazines, those are not actually what is objectively good and true. Those are messages that you're absorbing, and you have to actually fight against. That's hegemonic power. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, okay. that makes sense. Yep. So is th this is where the conversation around representation comes from um like the push to have different kinds of people shown in movies and films correct because that would Absolutely. be a way of freeing us from the oppression of a single narrative right so yeah so singular narrative so they would say that anytime you have a dominant group that would be a group like whites or men or heterosexuals or cisgendered people any dominant group that is able to impose its norms, values, and expectations on culture. Mm -hmm. That is a case of oppression. So, for example, it's considered, uh, you know, normal. White whiteness is normal. You know, white is normal, whereas people that are not white are exotic, or they're 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 outside of the norm. We expect people to be white. We expect people to be. They would say that maleness is a norm, and mm -hmm. we define femaleness as a deviation from the norm of maleness. They would say that. I'm, I'm not. I don't think I believe that, but <laughs> I don't believe that personally as a Christian, but I'm just saying that that's how they understand oppression. So whenever you have a dominant group, you have so society's broken down into dominant groups and subordinate groups or oppressor groups and oppressed groups, and it's not primarily through actual physical violence. It's through these ideologies that are imposed by the dominant groups to assign value to certain people, to themselves, and to uh, demote other groups to less than... Uh, valuable right so based on what you're saying wouldn't that wouldn't that make god really oppressive 
Yeah. Well, so we'll get into the conflicts later. <laughs> I, I, mean, I want to. Yeah. I, so I like to start by saying just what critical theory is, and then right. even pointing out where it has good ideas. So, for example, the beauty. I mean, beauty and sexuality. Man, you, ask a Christian. Do you feel like you're kind of constantly fighting a, a losing battle against the culture's norm? They're like, yes, yes. So it's, this isn't a crazy idea. Um, so I think I'll just go through what it is first, and then yeah. what it gets right. But then at the end, I think we can circle back and say, but. There's some fundamental problems, one of which you just touched on, with Christians trying to incorporate critical theory into their own worldview. Right. Absolutely. So what are some of the ways that so what are some of the other definitional things that and ways that we can spot critical theory? Right. So one. OK, we talked about how their focus is on oppression and liberation. And so to critical theorists, the idea of justice or specifically social justice it means the elimination of all forms of social oppression. That's a quote, actually, from uh, Mary McClintock in How to Interrupt Oppressive Behavior. So she writes, um, prior to celebrating diversity, we must first eliminate intolerance. No matter what form it takes or who does it, we must all take action to stop intolerance and when it happens. Working towards a celebration of diversity implies working for social justice, which she defines as the elimination of all forms of social oppression. Now, listen, here's what she says. Social injustice takes many forms. It can be injustice based on a person's gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, or economic class. And notice what she didn't say there. She didn't say injustice includes things like crime, violence, <laughs> right. theft, murder. It was, based, it was injustice based on gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation. So now I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that all people define social justice in this way, but when you talk to a critical theorist, when they use words like justice or social justice, they're thinking about eliminating oppression, where oppression means uh, hegemonic power, dominance, social uh, imposition of social norms. Right. That that is what justice means. Social justice means to a critical theorist. Right. So again, if you so again, I'm not saying that if someone says the word social justice, they're adopting that definition of critical theory. But to a critical theorist, that's what they mean. And, they, and they, they're really focused on that. They, that's their core moral obligation is that we should work for social justice and liberation. <clears throat> well, and it's kind of a moral ought, right? Yes, that absolutely. Is that it, in order to be consistent, you, you would have to teach that it's sort of this imperative that we must all embrace, right? Right. That's a great point, Joey. So, so people often... So people will often refer to um, critical theory as a, a post postmodernism. That's not quite right. So this is actually James Lindsay goes into this quite a bit. Yeah, the applied postmodernism. Post yeah, I, I love James. He, he's a, he had a good dialogue on Unbelievable. But yeah. um, he points out that postmodernism tends to be relativistic. So, you know, you have your, you have your um, values. You have, I have my values. You have your obligations. I have my, you have your moral truth. I have my moral truth. But critical theory is not relativistic. Like Joy just noticed, it's full of oughts and shoulds. You ought to liberate the oppressed. You should not oppress others, right? Those are universal, binding, absolute commands. And so critical theory is not relativistic. It is a, is a morally realistic worldview. And that, but its primary locus of concern is thou shalt free the oppressed. That's the fundamental moral duty of all people, according to critical theory. But it's not relativistic. Well, wouldn't the um, the classes and the ways that people be are oppressed be somewhat relative? Because, I mean, uh, it or would you say the idea that race, gender, ethnicity, all, however they decide to break it up, these are concrete ideas? Yeah, so actually, so James, no, I'm not sure about this. I haven't read much Crenshaw, but James says that actually Kimberly Crenshaw, I'm just reading her right now, actually. Yeah. Um, but he says, actually, she came to that realization. She said, look, I, I'm just reading her essay in, uh, it's called, uh, what is it called? Race and, uh, I forget what it's called. Anyway, um, I race reform and retrenchment right now. And she actually quotes from Foucault and Derrida. And mm. so she appreciates the postmodernists. But according to James, that she came to the realization that, well, she, I can't be a thoroughgoing postmodernist because that would relativize oppression. Right. Oppression is real. Right. So she, 
there is this sense of realism within critical theory that would not be permitted under a completely relativistic idea. So, for example, you know, real postmodernists might be pragmatists like Rorty and would say even truth is relative. Truth is a is a man-made concept. Right. But and you'll see some of that. There is some social constructionism with regard to say gender, right? But they always have to affirm that oppression is real. It's not just in your head. It's not like, well, you say it's oppressive, I say it's fine. No, they'll say. Right. Oppression is real. So there is this sort of, that's why when people equate critical, mod, contemporary critical theory with the Frankfurt School or with postmodernism, well, it actually draws on a lot of these different ideologies. It's not just any of those, it's not equivalent to any one of those. Right. Uh, I think James Lindsay calls it applied postmodernism. Yes, yeah, or, or grievance studies. That's, that's right. his name for it too. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense in a way. It is. <laughs> it um. It does feel to me as we try to put our arms around it. It feels in a way like trying to put your arms around feminism, um, because it's it's almost much easier to look at the results of the ideology um, than it is to specifically name it. Do you feel that way when you're reading these people? Well, yeah, and one thing, so we'll get to this too, one, the, the people that I read, I, I don't, again, I'm not super well-read. My friend Pat Sawyer is a professor at UNCG. He's on a, he, he actually, his dissertation is on is in, is in, is in cultural studies. And so mm. he wrote it from the perspective of critical theory. He's a, he's a you know conservative Christian like me, um, but he is really an expert on this stuff. Um, and so there's no one, uh, I haven't read like the, I mean, the, the philosophers were really trying to enumerate what are the, what are the core principles of critical theory? However, I've read a lot of the people applying it. And what's interesting is that they're, they don't tend to be very analytical and rigorous. Uh, and I think there's a reason for that. So they tend to argue that rationality itself is not necessarily the best way to reach truth. So here's a great quote from uh, Anderson and Collins. They say, the idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking, ah, one yes. that we will challenge throughout this book. This is the beginning of this huge anthology, Race, Class, and Gender. And their their solution is that we don't need to focus on, re focusing on reason and evidence and objective truth. Uh, okay, that's one way of thinking, but it's a Western and male way of thinking. There are other ways of knowing, which primarily do, are, 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 are come back to experience. Right. The term you'll hear is a lived experience. Right. Yeah. And that's how you know the truth, or at least. And I would argue that when you see it in practice, it's the way to know the truth about oppression, at least. Right. Um, you can't just go by evidence and reasoning and argument. You have to have this lived experience, which is only accessible to people who are oppressed. Yep. And this yep. is a, yeah. So go. Uh, Go ahead. Yes. No, this is this is exactly um, what we've seen with intersectionality. Um, although there might be truths that uh, someone can be a female and they can be a person of color and they can be they can have all these different uh, ways that they identify themselves. It seems that the assumption is that all if you the more ways you can identify yourself in these oppressed groups the more inherent understanding of the world that you have that isn't accessible to someone who is a white straight male absolutely so the re now, there's a reason for that because in their within their worldview remember that ideologies are the ways that the dominant or the ruling class uh, justifies its oppression so they tell the story about how we have uh, we, the reason we're on top is because we have we're noble, we're smart, we're the smartest, we're the most successful, we know we're we're capable. They tell that story, and a lot of people buy into that. But especially people that are part of the dominant group, they're blinded by their privilege because they don't want to they don't want to believe the truth, which is that they're not really capable or noble. They're actually just in power, and they're justifying these this power through a hegemonic discourse. But on, in contrast, a subordinate person, so a person who's a woman or a person who's uh, a person of color or a person who's LGBTQ, they have an, a possibility now, not necessarily, but they have a possibility of achieving what's called a, a liberatory consciousness. Or so they, they, because they can see themselves both as, say, a woman and they can see themselves through the lens of this dominant narrative, this male narrative, they see both perspectives. They can realize, hey, this is a sham. I know the male narrative is actually degrading and demeaning 
So they have access to truth that a male wouldn't have. Males are blinded by their masculinity because they're part of a dominant group. And then, as you said, the more uh, the more you're part of, the more oppressed groups you're a part of, the more access to truth that you have because you've now you know you see reality as a not just a, a woman but a woman of color, not just a woman of color but a you know a, a, a lesbian woman of color, not just a lesbian woman of color but a disabled lesbian woman of color. So the more uh, ways in which you experience oppression, the more that you have access to reality. And you're not blinded by these discourses. Right. This always reminds me, I'm not sure if I've even shared this with you, Summer, and I'm not sure if you've seen this movie, Neil, but okay. the movie Split. Yeah. M. Night. No. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of, which is that like those who are most oppressed are the most pure. That's right. Because in a way they're like oh. the most self-actualized because they have more insight. They've experienced more pain. Right. Therefore they have special insight. That's right. right. I'm not saying that he wrote right. that, that <laughs> movie too because he's a, a critical theorist. Right. Yeah. No, we're not I'm saying just that. saying it just reminds me. <laughs> But there, it, there definitely is a moral quality too. So it's not just epistemology, not just about how do you know truth. It's also a moral dimension because, again, oppressors are oppressors. Oppressors, oppression is a bad thing. And so, right. if you're part of a dominant group, whether or not you actually do anything personally, you're still benefiting from uh, this oppression, and you're accruing privilege through participation in this system, which is unjust. So that, that's why, um, yeah. So there are a lot of concepts that capture this idea that. Dominant groups, even apart from personal behavior, so they could be personally completely innocent of any wrongdoing. They could be loving and kind and and totally non-discriminatory, but because they're part of a dominant group, they are number one blind, and number two, they are morally tainted. Uh, this actually, Peggy Mac, oh, I don't have her quote here. Peggy McIntosh, um, she popularized the phrase white privilege in a 1988 paper. And she specifically says that she never saw herself as an oppressor, and that was bad. But then she realized later in life that she was uh, that she was morally guilty because she was un unbeknownst to her a, a, a white person, and that that tainted her uh, in terms of in moral terms. Right. So, well, all of us have a need to be uh, justified. We all want yeah. to be morally straightened out. Is there a way in critical theory for people with privilege to reach a higher moral plane? Yeah. So the uh, yeah. So the way that a person with privilege would attain, uh, we a Christian would say justification, is that they they uh, divest of their privilege. They they no longer. Uh, well, this is tricky because like Robin D'Angelo will say, you cannot cease to be white. You cannot start saying, "Well, I'm not white. I'm I'm Scottish American, or I'm half Indian American." You know, you can't you can't do that. You you have to just say, "I'm white," and because of that, I am deeply racist. She says that actually in her book that you know all whites, yeah. because they're raised in a racist society, are just deeply racist and have a racist worldview. And because of that, so you can't just say, "I'm not going to be white anymore," but you can try to be less oppressive, and so you can um, you can give up your power. And you can platform the vo voices of color or voice or women. So if I were, you know, I'm a man, so I could I could deliberately um, keep silent and platform and use my power to shine the light on women. Um, I can. I, I, I mean, there, there, actually, there are lists of what you should do as a privileged person. You should, uh, you know, you should apologize if any if people call you out for uh, for sexism or racism, anything. You are not permitted to argue. That, that's a sign of fragility. You have to just say, I agree. Whatever whatever hurt you, I I affirm that you are right and I am wrong. Um, and then to, to fail to do so is to simply reassert your white supremacy or your male supremacy. And so there's this constant list of rules that you can keep in order to preserve your status as an ally. And, that, and you, can't, you can't declare yourself an ally. That's actually really bad. Um, you have to be, you know, Elevated position of an ally by someone who is a, a, a member of an oppressed group. They say, "Yeah, this guy, this this person is an ally now," and and because they're willing to accept this view of systemic oppression. Wow, there is yeah. no justification. Then there is a mm -hmm. lot of condemnation for white folks. Essentially, is what I'm hearing. Well, just, I mean, this is not, the big thing is that this is not just a white. So uh, people 
always confuse critical theory and critical race theory, right. and and they're related, but they're di- different. I mean, they're they're definitely related, but they have different methodologies, um, different emphases. Uh, critical race theory actually grew out of the legal legal profession. Kimberly Crenshaw was a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so, I'm actually reading a book, book right now on where it came about. It came out of critical legal studies. So the point is just that they're not the same thing, mm-hmm. and. Part of the issue is that I think a lot of Christians can say, hey, we really care about racism. I'm glad they do, because racism is a bad thing. And so they begin to say, well, who cares about racism? Oh, these people you know, that are talking about anti-racist. Um, we can talk about what that means later. But yeah. these people care about racism. That's good. And so they begin to absorb this language of, of critical theory but don't realize that it's an entire worldview that applies not just to race. You can't, actually, if you read, uh, if you read anti-racists like um, Ibram Kendi or uh, Joseph Barnes, I just read reading his book, uh, he will say you cannot just be anti-racist and not also be anti-sexist, anti-homophobia, uh, anti-cisgenderism. So you, you, it's all a package because it's a package put together by critical theory. You right. can't just apply it to one or two things right. because it's 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 going to demand your entire allegiance as a worldview. Right. So let's back up a little bit. Can you uh, help us define what an anti-racist is? Yeah, this is this is actually a, a sort of important point. You mentioned before about defining terms. And so uh, a lot of these terms are familiar. They sound familiar as terms, but... Critical theorists use them in ways that are technical, so they don't define these terms the way that you would, the dictionary would define them, that you would hear them in, in, in common speech. So, for example, uh, anti, I was talking to my wife the other day, she's tired, so tired of talking about critical theory, but she puts up with it. Uh, I'll, we'll pray for her. Yeah. We, we need I you. Like, I, like, I said to her at night one time, I was like, you know, you know, I have, I have serious reservations about anti-racism she was like what <laughs> how, right. can you, how can you have right. reservations about anti-racism what are you right. pro-racism like right and you're half indian how does that even work <laughs> right so but i said no no no. you don't understand I, I said you know anti-racism is not opposition to racism it's not right so uh, I'll, I'll read you a quote in a second but um i would define it roughly as commitment to actively dismantling the systems and structures that produce and sustain racism. What's a mouthful? But if you listen to it, it it adopts a view of racism that is rooted in uh, critical theory and critical race theory. So here's an, here's an example. Here's a, He's a Lutheran pastor named Joseph Barnt. He wrote a book called Becoming an Anti-Racist Church. Actually, now he's uh, ELCA, so he's a mainline Lutheran pastor. Mm. Um, but this book was actually recommended to me, not recommended me, I was told to read it by a friend <laughs> who, who read it at, in an evangelical church. They were doing this as a book study. I believe that. Yeah. yeah so, so it's not, so in other words, you're like, well, this guy's not an evangelical. He's not, he's not a conservative Christian. He's not, but he's still being read and recommended and actually used as a resource by evangelical churches. So here's what he says. Here's his definition. Anti-racist is a new name for a person or community that develops an analysis of systemic racism becomes committed to dismantling racism and will not rest until it's ultimately escaping from the prison of racism. So again, think about it. He is really emphatic here. You cannot be an anti-racist until you develop a common analysis of systemic racism by which he means racism as a an ideology imposed on uh, by the ruling class, whites, on the oppressed group, people of color, whether it's blacks or Hispanics or Native Americans. So until you, you cannot be an anti-racist until you've embraced that view of racism, which just is a view based on hegemonic power and critical theory. And so so all I'm saying is that, I'm not even critiquing that, I'm just saying that you have to be very careful when you hear anti-racism, you're like, well, sure, of course. I mean, what Christian Christians had better be opposed to racism. That's not what the word means, though. Right. Well, it's like social justice. The same thing. Like at face value, you're like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, of course. that's not yeah. a horrible social sounding justice. thing. Right. <laughs> I love justice. Right. Let's do it. Yeah. What are you for? Social injustice? Like, <laughs> right. Who's, who's for that? Well, and I do have. So this is kind of in the. We touched on this a tiny, tiny bit, and then 
since we're talking about since I brought up justice, <laughs> um, I want you to talk a little bit about the group versus the individual in the context of critical theory. Because I think if you're listening right now, think about any of the moments in this interview that we discussed an individual versus the discussion of a group. Um, critical theory tends to put the the emphasis on the group, but where does, do they have, is there justice for the individual? So like in a, in a world with a full of sexism and rape culture, um, do we indict society or do we indict the rapist? Right. So, and I, so I won't say that there is no place for the individual at all in critical theory, but I would definitely say that the emphasis is on the group. It, all this, I mean, the entire concept of hegemonic power has to do with groups and right. the fact that you are, I mean, why are, why are some people blind and some people have access to truth because they're part of a dominant or oppressed group. And so in so many ways, even if they will, they won't probably say there are no such things as individuals, but they would definitely always focus their analysis at the group level in terms of, uh, you know, morality, in terms of ideology, in terms of uh, hegemonic discourse, ways of thinking, ways of knowing. So, yeah, like I said, I, I just think that's clearly the level of analysis they're dealing with, is, is the group over the individual. Well, and and certainly, again, when, when you saw social justice, they defined it in terms of what? Freeing groups from oppression, right. not giving in the person, you know, justice for something that happened to them. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So, what are the? And I think. Wait, let me say a little bit because I always, I really want to be careful because I think that, uh, especially Christians who are already wary of social justice and critical race theory, they can feel like this is just this is just Marxism. This is like Marx rising up out of the grave to like kill us. And I want to just make sure that we're not uh, totally um, ham-fisted in our analysis that we really sort of nuanced in how we view these things. So, for example. It's not Christians should think about groups. It's not like it, they don't exist. So, uh, for example, like if we think about uh, systems and, and oppression of groups. Those things happen in history. I mean, think about the Exodus. You have a group, the Israelites, that are being oppressed by a group, the Egyptians, and they are rescued by God who liberates them. There is a sense in which there are groups that can be oppressed as groups and that need to be liberated as groups. Uh, and other instances, modern era, the Holocaust, Jim mm -hmm. Crow, yeah. these things are real group injustices. And that we, it'd be silly to be like, how do you understand the Holocaust? Well, this one German guy killed this one Jewish family, and this other one German guy killed this other one Jew. No, right. you say there's an entire system that viewed Jewish people as viruses and as, as inhuman and led to their extermination. And it'd be, you have to view it, it's, it's, it'd be improper to not view it in part at a group level. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, so I can, there's other things too, like, uh, I'm reading this book on critical race theory, and um, it's really interesting because we tend to think, you know, we, what we should aim for is a society that's totally colorblind, where there's no laws about, there are no laws that single out any one uh, you know, racial, ethnic, gender group, right, for a for special anything for for either inferior or superior treatment, and it's I think it's yeah it's good that the law is is impartial in that way. However, there's an interesting example of how that was actually insufficient. Here's a really cool example. So that uh, the Civil Rights Act in 1964 said, look, you cannot discriminate on the basis of of race anymore. So in 1965, one year later, the Duke Power Company. Suddenly created a, they had they were they were deliberately saying blacks can't work in certain departments. They were saying that before, like totally they're discriminating them by race. After the Civil Rights Act passed, they suddenly said, okay, we can't do that anymore. But they suddenly created a new policy where you had to take you had to have a high school diploma and take two aptitude tests to work in this department. And lo and behold, no blacks could pass those tests. Right. So went to the Supreme Court and they were like, and they were like, hey guys, look, we have no, we have no rules that are that are race based. So that's cool, right? Supreme Court was like, well, no, you clearly did this to discriminate against blacks. It doesn't count that your laws are not explicitly race racist. They're implicitly, they're intentionally racist. So the point, the point was made. I think this was um, I forget who was playing uh, the case, but the point was made that it's naive to think that we can simply say once we get all the racism off the books, it's out of our hearts. 
Right. It's not, it's not the way hearts work, right? Hearts can still be evil, even if the laws look really good on the outside. Right. Well, and I think obviously as Christians, we, and just as people with um, eyes and ears, we believe that there are systems that are unjust. Yeah. Um, and I think so a lot of times when I'm speaking with someone who is on the opposite aisle from me in terms of what constitutes social justice, we actually agree on something that is unjust. So I would agree that it's unjust that they made these laws to purposefully exclude certain kinds of people. I think where we end up um, disagreeing is how to fix these things, because as far as I can see, um, if we really want justice socially, then we're going to follow God's standards for what that looks like. Um, and so I don't really see the definition. I don't see at all the definition of racism that the critical race theorist has in scripture. So the idea that racism is this, it, it, you can only be racist if you are have prejudice and power. I don't see yeah. that. Um, you know, the scripture warns us not to be partial, whether or not we're rich or we're poor. Um, and we're told how to treat people as image bearers. Um, I think a lot of times it really is in terms of how do we fix these things? And it seems like the other end of the aisle wants more laws, more laws. <laughs> um, mm. Where and, and again, that is a focus on the institution and the systems and how do we make those better? Whereas I would say that um, the Christian idea is that the government is supposed to wield the sword of justice and the church should be speaking prophetically into the culture about uh, how we should treat each other as image bearers. I just, I feel at a loss as to how to turn the conversation that way. Like it just seems like we're not using biblical definitions. So we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, that's, well, that's one thing to point out about so I think there are two things to keep separate. You should keep separate uh, theology and uh, ideology from politics. Now, they're related, obviously, but the point is, when I say things like, um, take, take racism, the definition. So you're right that, that anti-racists and the critical race theorists will define a racism as prejudice plus institutional power. So by definition, a person of color cannot be racist. The response to that for Christians should be immediately, is racism a sin? Like is primarily at its core, what is racism? Is it a sin or not? I hope everyone would say, yes, it is. Well, if it's a sin, <clears throat> then we can't define it based on power because the state of the heart and the attitude is what makes it a sin. Breaking God's, breaking God's law makes it a sin, not whether we have power or not, right? So that's, and even more than that, obviously there, this gets into the group thing. Obviously there can be whites with no power and, and people of color with lots of power and so defining it in a way that would completely make it impossible for a for a person of color to be racist, again, it, it undermines the idea that racism is primarily a sin. But then, so there's that, the ideological and theological objection, I think, is very important for Christians. But in terms of policy and politics, what I think a lot of times, if Christians focused more on policy and less on definitions and, <clears throat> and ideology, I think we could actually come to some agreement sometimes. So for example, you know, rather than saying, like Joseph Barnt does, we have to first agree on the whole, this whole entire ideology before we can do anything. I say, well, no, look, tell me what you want to actually implement. Do you want to get rid of cash bail? Okay, let's talk about that. Maybe cash bail is a really terrible policy. Let's, but, but rather than demanding that people you know, submit to your entire political or philosophical ideology before we can even discuss an issue, pick a, a particular issue and say, what can we do? Now, it may be that uh, there are topics that are so embedded in an overall ideology that we just can't talk about them. Like, I mean, take abortion, right? We can't talk about abortion policy independent of, is it even wrong? We have to go right. there first. And well, abortion's wrong, so it has to inform how we think about policy. But there are other things like practical things, like, I don't, like I said, cash bail, maybe how do we fund public schools? What's the best way to do it? I, I don't know. Or we can maybe we can come to an agreement apart from having this deep meeting of the minds with regard to ideology. I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm saying practically. Um, right. But but yeah, I, I do see that. So 
when I talk about these issues, I, I think people tense up because they're like, are you trying to get me to vote some particular way? I'm, I'm like, no, look, this goes deeper than that. Like your, your vote, you know, or your politics should flow out of your theology. Right. And I'm focusing on the theology level. Now, well, I think it, do I think it'll influence your vote? Yeah, probably. And it should. Yeah. But we have deeper issues here than just, oh, well, who'd you vote for? You know, I'm worried about like, what do you believe about the Bible? And then <laughs> we, well, we, we just say one more thing positively about critical theory, because I think we're about to start running it down. But um, well, I, I am at least. Yes. But, <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the last thing I'll say is, again, I think we should be very sympathetic to um, the plight of uh, well, blacks, people of color in general, women, uh, because there is really, truly, in the traditional sense, racism and sexism in our society. And it's actually shocking. So I talked about half Indian. I was amazed to find out that about one in six whites oppose interracial marriage. That blew my mind. One in six whites and about one in 25 blacks oppose. And it's not just on some pragmatic, vague, like, well, cultural clashes. I, I think 28% of Republicans said it was immoral, immoral to, mm. to have interracial marriage. And again, I, like, I grew up in a pretty, you know, it was like a middle class suburb and I had friends of all different races, ethnicities, religions, and I was like, who, who, do people really, but that's, that's consistent data, and uh, there are other areas in which um, people have just found empirically with, with careful studies that there's still discrimination around race with regard to hiring, so whites have about 35% higher chance of getting hired uh, give, uh, with respect to uh, the same credentials, the same CVs, and then they've done experiments that very carefully control for everything for yeah, I, 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 every I, every possible variable you could think of, and still find consistently that whites are hired at about 35% higher rate than blacks, given the controlling for education. I mean, they, they had the CVs; they just changed the names. They're identical CVs. They just changed the names from like Emily or Greg to Lakeisha or Jamal, and that was enough to to knock them down on the hiring in the hiring pool. Right. So the point is just that I think, and 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 then finally, you know, blacks. People of color, women have experienced terrible things, and so if they're a little bit skittish around men and whites, be sympathetic. Like you don't know what they went through, so you know it's Christian charity. Like if I if I, if I meet a, a woman who feels seems uncomfortable around me, I'm not gonna be like, "What's wrong with you? Don't you know we're brother and sister in Christ?" Like you know, lighten up. Mm-hmm. I'll say, like, oh, "How can I be ch- gentle and kind to her? Right, love her like I love myself." So I just want to make sure that we don't. In critiquing critical theory, say, that, "Oh, we're totally going to be harsh and nasty, and just just get you know get it together." We should always do everything in love for the edification of other believers. Right. Well, and you know, like I said before, I don't think Scripture speaks against the sin of partiality. Um, obviously, you're not going to find the word I don't think, <laughs> unless you have a different translation than I've ever used, racism in scripture. You're gonna find that we shouldn't yeah. show partiality based on outward appearances. So while it would be Christian love and charity for you as someone, uh, someone's brother in Christ to be patient with somebody who might have a distorted view of you because something in their past, um, mm. that would still be showing partiality based on your appearance, which is when it's like, well, grace has to come in here with all of our interactions. Grace has to be a part of it. Um, what would you say? I would say that would be one of the dangerous issues about critical theory coming into the church is that it seems completely devoid of grace. Mm -hmm. Um, what would you say is one of the most dangerous things? Uh, one of most dangerous threats that critical theory poses to the church oh okay so this that's a big topic so the, the biggest one yes <laughs> um, the, so you mentioned it already one one would be at a, at a root level it just the worldview is totally 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 antithetical to christianity because as you mentioned the bible is a hegemonic discourse the bible is one long justification of why god deserves to be god right deserves to have all the glory and all the power right that is a hegemonic discourse. And so you can't say hegemonic discourses are oppressive and then you have this fat hegemonic discourse sitting in your nightstand, right? That you trust in with all your heart. So that's one thing, but even then beyond that, so well, maybe God can have all the power, but human you know, power differentials are oppressive. Well, 
really? What are you going to do with, say, you know, male leadership in the family or in the church, male eldership? What are you going to do with the idea of heteronormativity? Should we dismantle that? Should we dismantle all these systems that privilege men or privilege heterosexuals or privilege? Think about church discipline. You're saying you have to be outside of our community because you have sinned unrepentantly. You know, you can repent and come back, but oh, you're, you know, you're, are you marginalizing them? So if you really embrace critical theory and say all of that is oppression that must be dismantled, what is left? I mean, think about, I mean, for example, critical theorists will cite Christian privilege as an oppression, right? The fact that we live in a Judeo-Christian society that embraces Judeo-Christian norms and more, and va- I mean, we're, we're losing it, but vaguely, we still think things like don't, not, don't steal, don't be cruel. Those are still parts of our, our culture. If that's a hegemonic narrative, should we dismantle that? Right. Should we dismantle the idea that Jesus is the only way to God that's marginalizing, you know, Muslims and Jews and, and Hindus? So there's really no bottom to what you'll have to discard when you start embracing critical theory as a, at, a, at that worldview level. Right. No, that's absolutely. And I feel like we are seeing it in certain areas. So my last question to you, how do we battle that? I think what's encouraging to me is that I think people are beginning to realize that this is a worldview. It's not just this, you know, because you can look at it and say, I see these disconnected bits and pieces of people kind of saying some progressive-ish stuff, liberalist theology, but I can't connect it. When you realize, man, this is actually uh, a whole different religion. That's what James Lindsay says, religion-like. You you can't, there's not really compromise with it in that sense. I mean, you can find parts of it that you can affirm and say, yeah, I want to fight racism and sexism too. But you start, uh, my friend Pat has a phrase, he says, double woke. You get double woke. You you, you wake, becoming woke kind of means kind of means embracing this idea of oppression and, and oppressors. But then you realize, wait a minute, that whole paradigm is actually part of an ideology that I can't embrace as a Christian. Um, so I think that's the, the good part of it is that I think just education, helping people put the pieces together can help them realize, oh, I can't I can't go all the way, even if they're tempted to say, because it sounds, you know, what Christian doesn't want to be compassionate and to liberate the oppressed and to right. care for the vulnerable? I mean, right. we all do. Right. But those terms have been redefined. And so you have to know that they've been redefined so that you're a little cagey when it comes to talking about those things. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, there, I mean, there are other, I could go on and on about there. You can look <laughs> at my writing on my blog um, and see a number of areas in which I think Christianity and critical theory are just not compatible um, in, in, in very, not just in superficial ways, but in fundamentally just deep ways. Right. I think, but I think the good thing is that we simply recognize it and learn about it and learn it and moreover learn why it's unbiblical. Where does it conflict with the Bible? That's actually the first step in just being able to be discerning. Right. What can we keep? What can we not keep? Right. Well, and actually, I I do believe your blog is is the best Christian source to really begin to understand those things right now, at least till your book comes out with uh, <laughs> you and Pat. Um, so will you please tell our audience where they can find your blog? Yeah, uh, just shenviapologetics.com. And if you Google Neil Shenvi, it's S-H-E-N-V-I, you'll find, you'll find it. Uh, I actually just had a, an article with Pat on the Gospel Coalition too, they published. Yes. So that'll, that has an introduction to critical theory and, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of resources there, book reviews, talks. Yes. You guys, seriously, I've been I've been posting links to his blog forever. Just go read it already. Neil, thank you so much for taking your time with us. I feel like this was very helpful. Yeah. And um, you know what? For a chemist, you're really not boring. I thank you, I think. I, think. I, miss, I, I apologize. I talked a lot, and you guys didn't get to banter at all. No, so no, no, no. That's fine. We're going to make know, sure. I, heard it, I, you know, I, I was listening to the first podcast, and I was like, okay, minute one, talking about dandelion tea. Okay, all right, I'll skip ahead a little bit. Oh, your husband makes you drink it. Okay, keep going. How to make grilled cheese. Which, minute six now. Okay, keep going. Skillets. Cast iron skillets. All right, well, it's minute ten now. So I, I was anticipating a lot more, you know, witty repartee. So yes, I, I yes. apologize for that. <laughs> no, we, we brought in the big guns and then when we hang up with you, we'll make sure we banter a lot. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right, Neil, thanks so much and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Summer. Enjoy. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, well, that was awesome. 
Agreed. I hope that was helpful for you guys. Sorry, I'm just closing up my bag of white Snacks. cheddar popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as Neil said, if you missed it, his blog is shenviapologetics.com, S-H-E-N-V-I. And um, just if you want to know more, this is the website that I would recommend. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's nice to have someone else come talk about the things that we've been talking about. And I hope mm -hmm. that it was just um, eye-opening for you. Um if you stuck through it and yeah, and yeah. you should have you should come on <laughs> come on what's our safe word for the end of the show to see if somebody uh, listens safe word. <laughs> like secret word oh secret word <laughs> i don't know um <laughs> my bad pineapple yeah you, yeah just pineapple that's all we have to say all right guys just get, uh, <laughs> leave us a voicemail and say the word pineapple mm-hmm and then feel free to say whatever you want. Right. That's the password for this week's episode. The password is pineapple. So if you're on Facebook and you see someone that's making a comment and it doesn't have pineapple on it, just be like, you didn't listen. I know you didn't listen to the show. Not all the way through. <laughs> Maybe a halfer, but all we right. were going to have a feminist of the week, but yeah. the feminist did our job for us these past few weeks. They, they really uh, did. went on a... They, are now abstinent and <laughs> right they're like and calling wait, for the death penalty in men, cases of rape men should have responsibilities <laughs> stop it all right <laughs> so they just did it for us and it was really great <laughs> um so you can leave us a voicemail at 470-465-0475 if you want patreon only content and access to early release episodes partner with us every time you drink out of a tiny water bottle <laughs> for six bucks a month you can keep the mics on and that's at patreon.com slash sheologians if you're and buying tiny water bottles you have sheologians money yeah absolutely come on you guys <laughs> all right we'll see you next week <laughs> see ya